it's it's hard for us to imagine now, especially if you ever go to Hot Springs, which I'm sure you nor many of your listeners have been there, but it's hard to imagine that Hot Springs could have been anything like Las Vegas because we all know today Las Vegas is an international tourist destination. We know of it as a quintessentially American city, right? It's it sort of looms large in our in our culture, but you know, in the 1950s, Las Vegas didn't have a working sewer. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is David Hill, who is the author of the forthcoming The Vapors, A Southern Family, The New York Mob, and The Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Vice. I was sent very generously from Dave's publisher an advanced copy, and what everybody is saying about it. I mean, this could be, I think, a pretty big book. The New York Times Book Reviews made it a summer pick. Publishers Weekly has made it a summer read of 2020. It's one of Thrillist's 21 books we can't wait to read, and I've read it. <laughs> like, this kind of buzz is very warranted. Um, Dave has written a lot of other places uh, beyond this first book of his. He's written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, The New Yorker. He's an extraordinarily New York-centric kind of guy for someone from Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, but he's also a really wonderful guy, uh, annoyingly smart. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more, more of him than I, than I do, but this was a real treat. It's always fun to talk to people that I've met face-to-face rather than fucking cold calling this. So I hope you enjoy David Hill. Why don't we jump into your book to start? Because one of the things I love about how weird boxing is, is it allows for such an eclectic array of people's work to touch upon it. Can you just give a, a, a kind of a minute book trailer of what this project is? Well, the book is about Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is the city where I was born and raised. And um, it's, a, it's a city that has a, I mean, if you went there today, you would know nothing. You would have no glimpse at all of its history. But Hot Springs at one point in time played pretty big on the international stage as a, like, um, a gambling resort. And yeah. uh, and sort of a, um, a, a center of the world of organized crime, and I mean, it was that from maybe the mid twenties all the way into the late sixties, early seventies. So most of the middle of the last century, Hot Springs was a um, was kind of an important town in the world of gambling and organized crime. But that history has been. So completely erased. I mean, even growing up there, I barely, you know, I only knew any of this because of members of my family who were involved in it, but it's not something that I think that the city has, um, you know, done a whole lot over the years to like promote or been that proud of. Um, so this is a little bit of like forgotten history of, um, hot springs. The books about hot springs, uh, covers the period of from 1931 to 1968. And the, it sort of follows the life of my grandmother who came to hot springs with her father, who was a horse trainer to um she came there with him to work the race season but stayed and worked in the casinos 
and um, started a family there. It follows her. It follows the life of um, Oni Madden, who was a big time uh, organized crime figure and crime boss in New York City, um, who, after getting out of prison, relocates to the Hot Springs and marries someone there and spends the rest of his life there. This is, this is the guy who owned the Cotton Club and was kind of a big deal in New York City during the 20s. And then the third character that the book follows is a man named Dane Harris, who was a local guy in Hot Springs, who was the son of a bootlegger, who grows up and sort of, I don't know, finds himself becoming the boss of the town. Um, and so it's about those three characters and their lives. And by the end of the book, their lives all kind of come together in this one club called The Vapors. Um, and so it's, it's nonfiction. You know, I spent five years uh, researching and writing it. Um, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, sourced and, 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 you know, there's a lot. Of, I, tried as the, I tried as best as I could to write it, you know, like, no, like a novelization or, you know, to write it, you know, so that it would read sort of like a novel. Um, but all the dialogue is, you know, from interviews and from source material and uh, all the stories and anecdotes all came from interviews and source material. And so it took a long time to write. I mean, those kinds of books I found are not easy. And I think when I set out to write this, this is my first book. I think that what I wanted it to be in the when I set out to write it, I didn't realize just how hard what I wanted to write would be to write. And I found myself, you know, digging a deeper and deeper hole I never thought I'd get out of, but I eventually did. And and the book is done, and um, you know I'm proud of where it ended up. Um, but it was not a, it was not an easy task, and I have a newfound respect for people that write this type of nonfiction for sure. Well, and you write it so well, and I mean the the opportunity to weave in the social, the political. I mean, you're getting to this heart of America in such an interesting way with this location, just because. This is Las Vegas before Las Vegas, Atlantic City before Atlantic City, and it's fascinating to me the milieu that is present, like the backdrop and the characters are so similar to sort of what I've been exposed to just in covering boxing for 10 years. I mean, the, the mob, big name people, and I was thinking even it's connective tissue to, to Trump, to Trump using boxing and and this kind of setting for raising his profile with his casinos and and hotel and that kind of thing uh babe ruth is there i mean why is this place forgotten i guess is my biggest question that if this is vegas before vegas vegas now is has been turned into this zoo from the jungle that it was which seemed to have similar seeds and origins to hot springs why is this a forgotten capital of vice do you think well well because uh history's written by the winners right and hot yeah. springs was the loser i mean it what i the story i tell in the book and the story that i didn't realize until i set out to write the book was the story is that hot springs and las vegas were really pitted pitted against each other in a bit of an arms race like i, I think there was a real there was a moment in time and this moment was right after the cuban revolution where you know, organized crime had to figure out where they were going to invest because Havana was, you know, Meyer Lansky really had this vision of Havana as being the mob's future, right? That 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 um that would be a Monte Carlo all of their own, and that they would build this sort of gambling paradise that would be legitimate, and they would, you know, become uh, 
you know, um, incredibly wealthy and that that was their future. And so after the revolution, when that was no longer an option, um, they had to sort of survey what their options were. And that revolution happened at the same time that the FBI and the American government was trying to really put the squeeze on organized crime in the United States, whose biggest source of income was gambling. So the way the FBI went after them was by shutting down gambling operations all over the country um, through the McClellan and the, you know, the McClellan hearings that they held all over the country. And, um, and uh, you know, Robert Kennedy's uh, um, Department of Justice. So Hot Springs was one of those illegal gambling towns, and they were the last one standing after every sort of city from Cook County, Illinois to Palm Springs to Miami, every, you know, um, Phoenix City, Alabama or uh, Newport, Kentucky. They're all getting shut down around the country. All that's left is Hot Springs and Las Vegas. And I think there was this moment where that was the choice they had to make. Do we want to put our money into Hot Springs or do we want to put it into Las Vegas? And Meyer Lansky famously hated Las Vegas and did not think that it was you know, he, he didn't think it was a very hospitable place. You know, it, it's, it's hard for us to imagine now, especially if you ever go to Hot Springs, which I'm sure you nor many of your listeners have been there. But it's hard to imagine that Hot Springs could have been anything like Las Vegas because we all know today Las Vegas is an international tourist destination. We know of it as a quintessentially American city, right? It's, it sort of looms large in our, in our culture. But, you know, in the 1950s, Las Vegas didn't have a working sewer. You know, they had one street light and one paved road. I mean, this is, you know, at the beginning of the Las Vegas Strip, Las Vegas was still struggling to figure out how to be a city at all. And um, and so it was for for anybody to think about investing tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into this, you know, this this desert. That was pretty wild proposition at the time versus Hot Springs, which had been kind of a Baden Baden, like a, a resort spa, like a European type spa in America for the last hundred years. You know what I mean? Like it seemed like it was a no brainer, yeah. but there was a bit of an inner scene war that went on behind the scenes. And that combined with the Teamsters uh, pension fund kind of picking a winner here. I mean, Las Vegas, eventually we all know won that war. And I think the reason we don't know about Hot Springs is because Las Vegas wins Hot Springs loses, and Hot Springs was closed down pretty fast. I mean, this all, this real battle takes place between like maybe 1961 and 1964. And so, you know, that's three, during that three year period, I think Hot Springs made a real bid to be the, the, the Monte Carlo of America, to be America's gambling capital. And by 1964, I think it was clear that they were going to lose that fight that the forces were going to prevail against them, whether it was the government or the state government or the mob or even local gambling leaders. So they shut it all down and let Las Vegas, <laughs> let you know, sort of bowed out and let Las Vegas win. And those are the same years that the Central States Pension Fund pumped a lot of money into Las Vegas to build Caesar's Palace and Stardust and those places. So, you know, and then Hot Springs went on, Arkansas went on to become a very conservative place. I mean, Arkansas was already arguably a very conservative place, even though there was this strange resort in the middle of Arkansas that was, you know, a place that celebrated vice and, you know, and tolerated crime and, uh, and, 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 and was more progressive politically than the rest of the state. Despite that, Arkansas was definitely hardening around issues of civil rights and, and, uh, and um, becoming a much more conservative place and and Baptists were taking control of the state. And I think that once Hot Springs gambling was shut down for good, it was really swept under the rug. And I think the leaders of Hot Springs decided to try to turn 
the page and become a family family resort to still be a tourist destination, but to appeal to a different type of clientele. That never really took the way gambling did and Hot Springs struggled. I grew up in Hot Springs in the late 70s and um, in, in the 1980s. And um, that was Hot Springs at its nadir. I think Hot Springs really did not know what it was going to be back then. And it, you know, when I was growing up there, it was this town that was really struggling. I think today it's it's got a much better handle on how to be a, a resort town. But today gambling's legal there too now. So there's casinos there again. So <laughs> that's probably yeah. helped. Well, it's interesting. Yesterday, yesterday I interviewed T.J. English, who's done two books on organized crime in Cuba. Uh, mm-hmm. His most his most recent, The Corporation, looks at one of their big figureheads and and how he was mm-hmm. operating in Miami, Jose Battle. Um, yeah. But it, it's fascinating to me reading your book because when I was really delving into research about Havana and what Havana was supposed to be, with a U.S. puppet government. With, with Batista, who flees the island with $300 million looting the treasury from the Cuban people, um, the U.S. in total control of the com- country, and just as you say, it, it was the original sort of Monte Carlo for the U.S. Um, the plans were in the, the one area that's been earmarked as a world heritage site in Havana, old Havana, the part where everybody wants to go to see all the Hemingway stuff and this colonial theme park of architecture, all of that was intended to be knocked down and paved for a gigantic parking lot so that they could build a gigantic casino off the Malacombe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating that all of, all of those best laid plans uh, move over and all of, all of this money and all of these interests in trying to, to find a location for all of the interest in gambling and show business and, and everything that Vegas became, um, you're just addressing that period. Like, I, I don't know. It, every time I've gone to Atlantic City, to see the fumbling version of what Las Vegas became is particularly interesting, like such an unbelievably depressing place. Uh-huh. And I, wonder, I wondered for you, as you're looking at this, how do you weigh in on like somebody like Hunter S. Thompson after Hell's Angels? I think his brilliant insight there was that the Hell's Angels were not an aberration from America at that time. They were a very natural byproduct of American society. Um, and then I think for, for many years after that, he had a book deal with Random House that was the death of the American dream, quite a title. But he never really found the location of that until he arrived in Las Vegas. And there it was clear, kind of the America he loved put a gun to its head. It was this suicide that it seemed like that book was really about, Fear and Loathing. Like behind the humor of it is this incredibly sad nexus of what brings America down in the most family-friendly entertainment hotspot in the world. So I, I wonder, did you have that sense, like exploring the origins of your hometown and, you know, all of the damage that this kind of stuff has done? And yet, you know, we have prohibition, we try to ban gambling, its impact on Cuba, allowing somebody like Fidel Castro to rise to power for as long as he did, in part, I mean, I should say, um, was this a really dark thing to look into as far as the American character for you? Yeah, I mean, it was dark for me on a lot of levels. I mean, you know, the 
even just like the main character of the book, my grandmother, I think I learned a lot about her writing this book that I didn't really realize going into it. I think it changed the way that I, the way that I saw her and it, I found myself judging choices that she made. I mean, I really think that, you know, going into this, my own feelings about my family, about gambling, about crime, about, you know, all these kinds of things were really tested by the deeper I went into the research. And as I was writing the book and as the sort of story of the book unfolded in front of me, I, I started to question whether I really, you know, what did, what I, what did I really think about these things? Um, but so, yeah, I, def, I, I think that the, the question of gambling and whether it's, you know, whether it's something that's fun and harmless and, you know, a, um, uh, um, uh, like a, 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 a fun part, a fun sort of American pastime for, as opposed to it being something that's um, maybe dangerous or, you know, or, or destroys people. Uh, that my sort of view on that was tested by the work that I did in this book. Um, I, I definitely did not write this, set out to write this book to tell a story about a city that was ruined by gambling. In fact, I think that I, for my whole life, felt like it was cool that Hot Springs had all this sort of Ill, illegal and illicit gambling, that I thought sure. that it was, I, I was proud of that history and I didn't understand why the city wouldn't celebrate it. Um, but I found myself right while I was writing, feeling more sympathy for some of the regular folks in Hot Springs who uh, turned on the gambling business and, and, and started to question whether the gambling business was good for the community or not. And not all those people were Bible thumping Baptists. You know, some of them were just regular, regular hardworking folks who felt like, you know, somebody's getting rich off of this and it ain't me. Um, so, right. you know, I, I was able to see all the different sides of it and see it in a fuller way. So if I, you know, think about that national, you know, on a larger scale, like, and I think about the American relationship to the, to gambling and I write a lot about gambling a lot. It's become a big part of, you know, my life. And um, I think about gambling a lot and maybe more than most people. And, um, and I still feel like I have a bit of a complicated and um, conflicted relationship with gambling. Um, Especially when you think about the gambling business, you know what I mean? Uh, sure. The gambling industry, the casinos. I mean, I think that anybody as a gambler, I think that like I can I could safely say that I think that gambling itself doesn't, you know, doesn't doesn't ruin people. It's that casinos ruin people and casinos ruin people because they get them to gamble with them at, at a disadvantage. Right. That they have an edge over people and they exploit that advantage and they try to hide it as much as they can from folks. So. That's what ruins people, and um, and that's why gam that's why casinos essentially print money. You know, um, I think that uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, it's fascinating to me that um, one of the, I just wrote a piece recently for the Ringer about gambling during the during the sort of coronavirus. Um, uh, you know what's happening to gambling while every, while sports is shut down and casinos are shut down and. Um, one of the things I talked about in that piece was how it's fascinating to me that gambling goes, people gamble more when they're, when there's, when they're poor, like when they're, when they're at their worst, right? Like the depression was one of the highest spikes of gambling in American history was when nobody had any money. And that's because it preys on people's dreams. It preys on people's idea that they should, that they could make a lot from betting a little. Um, and uh, people's appetite for gambling goes up when times are harder. 
And that's counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. And I think that that says something about Americans, right, about American culture, that poor people tend to be more free with their money because what the fuck, right? I mean, we, you know, it's here today, here today, gone tomorrow anyway. So I might as well make a bet and try to win a lot of money or buy a lottery ticket because, you know, when you're not used to having lots of money, uh, risking a little bit of money doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, and when things are really, when times are really tough, uh, and the economy is really, you know, in the shitter, people are going, you know, poor people will gamble even more, um, because why not? What else are you going to do? You're going to like the idea that you can work hard, sock a little money away and build up a big savings and like move yourself to the next station in life. People are poor. People do not buy that. You know what I mean? They don't believe that they're like, I'm poor. My dad was poor. His dad was poor. I'm going to be poor. The only way I'm not going to be poor is if I hit the number. <laughs> right. Sure, so like that's sure. just a different way of looking at money and your and your your outlook in life than somebody who has money and comes from money and says, oh, that's stupid. You know, that's a that's a waste of money to gamble. Well, and I think I think on top of that, I would add, you know, I come to New York with no money at all and I open up a Chase account and just for them to store my money and I can't do business without a bank account, I have to pay twenty dollars a month to them until I have $15,000 in there. Shouldn't you yeah. have to pay if you have money as opposed right. to I have nothing and I should be penalized for it? Or Jeff Bezos paying no taxes, whereas you know people below the poverty line having to pay all over the place? It's, uh, it's, a, it's very troubling how, how rigged everything, you know, just that capitalism feels like its own kind of casino the way it's run in this country for so many people. There's a sense of hopelessness. And I mean, not just gambling, I'm sure, is exacerbated by desperation. But I think, you know, the opioid epidemic, suicide, violent, violence, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it all spikes in relation to desperation. Um, but I wanted to touch on something. I remember as a kid coming upon uh, Goodfellas and hearing that line, the working man's a sucker and thinking like, I hate this. I hate what this is promoting that blue collar guys, which my family came from were, were suckers that no, nobody should play by the rules that it took, it took real guts and courage and bravery to become a criminal stealing <laughs> all over the place. And I thought like, what is this promoting? Why is there this, this Hill character that Ray, Ray Liotta was playing there's no soul to this person, so why, why is this being put forward as being so attractive and glossy? Like, why is America so increasingly wanting to root for anti-heroes? Like, anything heroic seems kind of boring and dull by comparison. And what I didn't understand was that movie, uh, Casino, and then The Wolf of Wall Street, you have these three different stratas of looking directly at materialism and capitalism. And Scorsese's point is, is that all of these things attract the demographics that are moving into criminality, that it is completely appealing for blue collar people to move into that because we don't want to wait in line at the club. We're just like that woman being seduced in that beautiful shot, like the, the one shot to get into the, get into the stage, have the chair brought out to us, 
free drinks and everything. Similarly, casino, an entire place built on loss and suffering of the people going in there. And then the next strata with Wolf of Wall Street, um, I train a few people with boxing that are on Wall Street. They were just like, I know I'm supposed to feel bad about this, but everybody I know loved it. We're, we're, it's <laughs> such a favorable depiction of us. And so I, I just wonder, like, what do you, what were, like, A, with those three films, I mean, I presume you're, you're a film guy. What do, you, what do you make of this, that these things that we know do so much damage yet are just so much more desirable than the alternative, like to save money versus let's go to Vegas and fucking lay it all out. Or Well, well I think that the, I think characters like Henry Hill and, um, and uh, you know, Lefty Rosenthal, you know, who are they were real people, but, you know, the sort of Scorsese depiction of these characters, what's appealing about them is that they're, 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 um, they're smart. They've outsmarted everybody else, right? That they they have figured out how to not play by the same rules as everyone else, to do something smarter than other people, to um, to you know, to uh, I don't know, sort of cleverly work their way to the front of the line. Um, you ever no you'll notice that like Scorsese Scorsese doesn't make a movie about he hasn't made a movie about a mobster who's like successful just because he's sociopathic and terrorizes everybody and becomes the leader just because, you know I mean? He hasn't made a movie about Albert Anastasia, right? And nobody ever does. Sure. Those movies would not have the same appeal there, right? People would watch those movies and say, oh, these people are psychopaths. Like they're not celebrated. It's always about the, the plucky character who is like sort of smarter than everybody else, right? And, um, and, um, and we root for them because we feel like, oh, this person is crafty or clever or is trying to do the right thing in a, in a crooked world or whatever. Um, and I think that's part of the, the appeal about those guys and you know the fact that they also are doing it in this world of machismo and like tough guys and like people eat that shit up too right this sort of or sure. the mob movie is a thing because you know particularly men enjoy these stories where tough guys sort of prevail in a world where violence decides who is um you know but that that dynamic of the strong prey on the weak but the clever prey on the strong i think that's just a very you know appealing american story that gets told over and over again um but I, it's interesting you bring that up because I thought about those sort of those books, the Nicholas Pledge's books a lot while I was writing this book because I feel like my Hill character, you know, Hazel Hill, that she, my book's a lot, I think my book's about ambition. I think that the story of the Vapors is a lot about ambition too, that both, that all three of my characters are ambitious. They all want something great, you know, greater, they want something greater than their station or whatever. They're all trying to make something um happen that everybody around them is telling them can't happen right that this that that, that this will never happen it can't happen here it won't happen to us we can't have this you're crazy you're a dreamer and so all the three of my characters are sort of ambitious to rise above their station or whatever and the difference between i think the characters in my book and like maybe the characters in casino or whatever is that they they don't succeed they fail right they right. slide just close enough to the sun and then it all fails and it actually hurts everybody gets hurt by it in the end. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe it's a little, it's, it's, it's not as, it's a little bit more depressing. They probably won't make a movie of the vapors because it doesn't have, you know, the characters in Scorsese movies, they always have to pay a price at the end too, but it's like, Oh, you know, you got to go into witness relocation or, 
you know what I mean? Or like you're, you know, you get, you go to jail or something like the cops finally catch up to you, but it's never because you screwed up or you, you made a mistake, you know, it's just because the times changed or, you know, the world shifted and you, you were, you know, shifted in a different direction than where you were going. Like everybody zigged when you were zagging or something like that. But in my book, it's really that like, you know, the ambition that they, that it turned out that the doubters were right. Right. <laughs> that it, that, right. The, that the naysayers were right and the dreamers were wrong. And that is actually kind of not that much of an American story. I think that's why there's not a sort of a Hollywood ending to my book. There's what really happened, you know, what really happens in America. <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? That, that, that the dreamers do often find themselves, you know, uh, holding an empty bag at the end. Um, and that's what happens to Hazel and Dane and Oni is that, they're, they don't achieve their ambitions. They do fly too close to the sun. So, you know, I thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot while I was writing the book and about, you know, what is it, you know, what's, what's, why, because there's a temptation in writing something like this to try to, I don't know, find the right storyline or the right narrative or the right character that will feel more like a Hollywood story or a storybook, you know what I mean? But sure. when you're writing nonfiction, you know, it's like, well, what really happened is what really happened. And I found, I was very tempted many times to try to like find a different character or a different, or a different period of time or figure out a way to end on a different note. You know, I wanted it to sort of, I wanted it to fit into a nicer, neater package than it did. But in the end, I decided that what really happened is what really happened. And that the truth, you know, is what makes it a better story. Um, and, so I hope that I didn't do that to my detriment. I'm, I, I really do hope they do make a movie of the vapors one day. And if they do, maybe they'll rewrite the ending, <laughs> which they get to do I, from what I understand. No, you're absolutely right. Well, no, I mean, I think I thought it was very interesting how their fortunes turned. And, and I agree with you with, with the ambition and dreamers. I mean, uh, when I was talking to TJ English, he talked about for most Americans, when they look at, Cuba, it's, it's just Godfather 2. It's the meeting in, on top of the Nacional and cutting the cake that is, mm -hmm. has Cuba on top in the frosting. Um, but I, I always remember that discussion he has with Michael Corleone uh, about uh, there's not a plaque for the man that dreamed up Las Vegas anywhere. Like, how can this guy not be a visionary? And it's intriguing to me that I always found that fascinating because you have the Kennedy family being who they are, where the money was earned through bootlegging and rigging the stock market. Rockefeller is a lot of controversial aspects of how he acquired his great fortune. Carnegie, Pulitzer, um, it is interesting, or, or Trump for that matter, all the bankruptcies, all the tremendous failures, but just being allotted so many more chances than some uh, some of these other people like the ones in your book with ambition with dreams with the gumption to go after it it's 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 fascinating the ones that rise or fall and some of the things that separate them because you just think if if many others of the, many other characters that failed had the second third fourth fifth sixth chance that some of the other ones who succeeded had how history would be written how much sure. dif differently? I mean, I definitely think about that, about how Hot Springs, I mean, one of the things I, I think I learned in writing the book was that Hot Springs could have been Las Vegas. And I think that's really hard for people who live in Hot Springs, even people who were alive at the time, to even 
they can't even comprehend that, right? It's so hard for us to imagine that, but it's totally true. And Hot Springs easily could have ended up being, you know, um, this, you know, this massive uh, tourist destination in the middle of the deep south. Um, if only for a couple of things going a different way, like, a, you know, one or two people making different one or two choices differently would have changed the course of that history. But I mean, there is a plaque in Las Vegas for Bugsy Siegel. There was a statue of Benny Binion for many years in the middle of the street. I mean, it's interesting mm. that Las Vegas is a city that has celebrated some of its sordid past in a way that, you know, that I mean, it, less so today than maybe it has it did closer to when those days really were around. But um, but uh, Las Vegas is a, I've always been I've always admired how much Las Vegas has preserved its own history and acknowledged the sort of criminal, you know, an aspect element of its own history um, in a way that other cities maybe, you know, maybe would be reluctant to do um, or even to celebrate some of the sort of criminal founders of that city. But Las Vegas isn't unique on that score. I mean, a lot, all of our major American cities were run. I mean, New York city was run by the mob for a long, long time. You know, sure. we, we, Jimmy Walker and the mob ran New York city for, for years. And, and, you know, the the um, Los Angeles, I mean, a lot of our major cities owe a lot of their history to organized crime and even beyond organized crime. I mean, crime and corruption has played a part in American in a part of American history forever. And so, you know, why not be honest about it? I don't know that we have to celebrate it just by being honest about it. But what's weird about Las Vegas and I guess what's weird about my book and about some of this sort of outlaw history is that we are kind of celebrating it. I mean, I think that in some ways my book is sort of celebrating these leaders of that city's gambling business and that city who were, you know, admitted criminals and who said like, we're, yeah, what we're doing is illegal, but we have to do it. I think they, they, Dane Harris in my book is somebody who I think never thought of himself as a criminal or a gangster and really thought that he was just doing the right thing for his community. You know, from the beginning to the end of his life, he always sort of believed that I'm just doing what's right for my community. I'm sure I'm buying off senators, you know, and I'm 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 paying for, you know, political corruption and I'm tolerating political and uh, violence. But, you know, I'm doing it because it's for the good of the city. It's what puts food on people's tables. It's what keeps people employed. It's what our, our city needs. And I found interviews with him where he'd say things like, this is just like a grocery store. A casino here is like a grocery store. It's just a place people go and spend money. It's a place where people work. You know, it's just a business, a small business. <laughs> and right. I think he really believed that. And um, I think I think that that's what's a little bit different about, um, I don't know, this particular type of illegal business as opposed to, say, drugs, is that it's easier for us to talk about it and remember it and... Um, I don't know, mythologize it in a way that allows these people to be um, uh, uh, celebrated or lauded or heroes or whatever differently than if than if they were involved in drug trade or prostitution or whatever. Right. The, the, the gambling business and just similarly, the, the bootlegging business of the during prohibition. We root for them because we feel like they were doing something that we all that we all know is going to become legal at some point anyway, and it doesn't hurt anybody. Whatever, there's this idea that it's more of a victimless crime than sure. say, you know. So, so it's different, I think, for gambling than it is for some other forms of vice. And I'm not sure why, because there is a cost, there is a toll, and they still were criminals, you know, and people did go to jail 
people did end up hurt. And I think I say in the introduction of the book, you know, I close the introduction of the book with this idea that like, you know, how many people get killed and beat up and hurt in order for these rich people to like, you know, dance in a ballroom and eat steaks and play blackjack, you know, that there is a, there was a cost to it. No, I mean, it's, I've always found it really interesting that the, the result of around a decade of prohibition is this is a much worse problem than we thought. So let's just embrace it. Like I've often wondered once all drugs become legal because we just need something to tax to raise some more revenue, once advertising gets a hold of drugs, I like, I can't wait to see fentanyl commercials or cocaine mm-hmm. commercials the same way alcohol, like you can't have a good time unless you're drinking. There's something right. a little off about you unless you're drinking. And are we that far away from that kind of thing? And, and similarly with gambling, you know, like drinking related deaths, it's like 88,000 people die per year just from drinking. And then on top of that, drinking and driving. And yet, you know, how long did it take to dispel a lot of the, the myths about marijuana use or, yeah. or how many people are dying from cigarettes? And then with gambling, I mean, I looked into it a while ago, but I remember that casinos make their real money on about 10% of people that are exposed to gambling and it just takes over their life. It, it's not, it, just like people who drink or people, you know, who, who use drugs, the vast majority of people very safely use this stuff recreationally, but around 10% of people are just wired where it just takes over everything and their life becomes mm-hmm. about giving into it or resisting it sort mm-hmm. of thing. And yet it just has this image whenever I go to Vegas where I'm, you know, and I've only gone to Vegas to cover fights. You know, I'm tired working, writing. I step into a casino and I'm over oxygenated so that, I can have energy to gamble. Like it's such a, it's so bizarre to me just how cheerful it's meant to be and uplifting when I'm like, all it's here to do is just rip people off legally. Well, I think gambling, what's interesting about how gambling has evolved from the period of the time that this book is set till now is how, um, I mean, the scale of it is insane today, you know, versus... Mm -hmm. You think about Hot Springs and Las Vegas, both of those cities in the late 50s, early 60s, were, were not in any way operating on the scale that Las Vegas operates on today or that, you know, casino gambling or, gamb- you know, or even sports betting operates on today. I mean, the scale is just outrageous today. You know, technology has changed the way that people gamble a lot. But, I mean, there was a period of time in America where so many... So many people in America gambled, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s, you know, in the post-war years. Gambling was so prominent in American life that, you know, horse racing results were on the front page. You know, like the most popular sports in America, boxing and baseball and horse racing, were popular because people bet on them. Like gambling was that much a part of American culture and life during that period of time. But even though so many more people were gambling, the scale was nothing like it is today. Um, and if you go into those casinos, yeah, they're cranking out tons of money because they have these machines and they, they have machines covering every square inch of these massive facilities. So like, you know, the vapors, the club that my book is about, I mean, they had what they had like fucking six blackjack tables, you know, and like five dice pits. 
Sure. I mean, they were they were a tiny casino, but they were bringing in lots of money and they were a major player for that period of time in America. I mean, that was a major casino. Even the big casinos on the Strip, it's not like they had lots of tables that, that were in action at any given time. But but it has grown over the last half century into something that is so massive. And they and it's all about math. It's all about like figuring out how you take a small edge and you know, if you if you if all you have is a slight edge. Well, the way that you make a, an insane amount of money is you just maximize your volume, right? And if you can, if you can just create more volume, then that little edge of making a penny on every dollar goes from being a penny to being millions of dollars. It's just about how much volume can you do. And that's yeah. true whether we're talking about sports betting or casinos or whatever. And when they figured out how to maximize their volume, they made a lot more money. But in, in doing so, they brought a lot more gamblers in and they brought a lot more – those gamblers had to bring a lot more money with them to the table. Um, and that's what's changed. So gambling did used to be sort of more quaint, even when it was something everybody was doing. It was much more quaint. It was much more of a recreational thing. You know, people went and they would had dinner and they danced and they played a little bit of blackjack and they went home. But today it is something that's changed in the way that it's the way that the gambler experiences in the casino, the way that the casino sort of rolls it out. I mean, the volume is just insane. Well, and I think, and, and on top of it, I mean, you've got kids being given a device that's more addictive than fentanyl, and mm -hmm. they're getting addicted to games that probably is, I would suspect, like, very similar to fun, harmless little games where they're going to be paying money. I mean, the payoffs of a lot of games that are on your phone is you have to keep, you know, it's a free app to download, but it's not free at all to get any satisfaction of it. You have, it becomes a slot machine. You're pumping money in to mindlessly gain yep. progress in, be it sports games or, or farming or all these ridiculous things. But it's the same kind of meditative, addictive, just tune out the world and focus on one thing like a slot machine where, you know, I've seen so many documentaries that show those people um, and interviews them and it doesn't have anything to do with them being dumb or smart or educated, it just preys on something internally. Yeah, that it's it's ugh. It's, it's biological. I mean, the world of video games has taught the world of gambling a lot, and slot machines. You know, the comp the major slot machine manufacturers in the United States, they are totally borrowing from the science of video gaming and you know the 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 way that our brains react to rewards and things like right. that in video games and. And yeah, I mean, I feel I consider myself a smart gambler, but I'm not above playing a slot machine and experiencing and feeling that joy that comes from betting two dollars and winning a dollar seventy back. You know what I mean? Which is losing thirty cents. But it's but if the machine makes the right noise and the colors change the right way, it feels it's like a happy little moment, a happy little two seconds in your life. And if you can string enough of those together within the course of ten minutes you're going to get that person to stand there and keep putting money in the machine. Nobody's immune from it. If you allow yourself to stand there and do it, you will experience it. It's a high, you know what I mean? And it's uh, a high. it feels yeah. good. And, um, you know, and who, you know, at the end of the day, you, you lost a hundred bucks and it'll suck that you lost a hundred dollars. But I, you know, I imagine that it probably sucks to, you know, come down off of, uh, you know, being blackout drunk and knowing how much money you lost at the end of a of a wild night of drinking too, and to feel sure. like I wish I had that money back and I wish I had that night back. But in the moment of doing it, it sure felt good, you know. Well, and and just also just how these how these backdrop locations 
you know, that Hot Springs is using Babe Ruth, that there's people there looking to get into boxing because there's no barrier to entry, get in with Jack Dempsey, Rocky Marciano's money, the, some of the money behind him is coming from Hot Springs criminality. Yeah. Uh, I remember being fascinated when Floyd Mayweather was in prison for beating the mother of his kid, and they let him out of prison to fight because of his economic impact on economically depressed Las Vegas. They said, look, this guy is worth billions of dollars in tourism, hotels, gambling, food. food. I mean, the, the ancillary benefits of a Floyd Mayweather fight, as was the case with Mike Tyson, where it's like, this is a convicted rapist who's just gotten out and we're giving him 20 to $25 million because he's worth billions to the Las Vegas economy. And don't get in the way of that because there's, no, there's nowhere else to go to generate that kind of income off of these guys, off the accident of 36 minutes of them presumably fighting in the ring for a night's work. It, it's, I don't know, it's just such a, a disturbing stack deck to just uh, bring in the kind of attention and resources that it does and to overlook anything negative about its impact or its implications. It's interesting that boxing has always had a relationship with gambling, you know, from the very beginning of, you know, of professional fights in the United States. It's all about, it was all to facilitate gamblers. And, and today, even today, you know, gambling is a big part of why we continue to hold fights, you know, at, at a lot of levels. I mean, not every sure. fighter is making the kind of money that Floyd Mayweather is, but those fights are valuable to promoters and are especially valuable to the city of Las Vegas because people gamble on them. Horse racing, which is a sport I'm very familiar with, it's the same thing. It's like the reason we still have horse racing in the United States is because of gambling. Um, if you outlawed gambling on it, we would probably not have much of a sport at all. It would probably would cease to exist um, in the United States. So I've always thought that was kind of interesting. And so because of that, Gambling towns, Atlantic City, Las Vegas, and even in the book Hot Springs during that period of time, were also towns that were where boxing was a big part of, um, you know, was a big part of the sporting culture in those communities too. Um, and that was definitely true in Hot Springs. There weren't a lot of professional fights there, but there were certainly a lot of really big name fighters that um, trained in Hot Springs for fights because it was a, you know, it was a, a spa um, and it was a good place to sort of rest up. Um, and train and uh, and Oni Madden, who is a who I mentioned before, is a main character in the book. He was also very involved in the fight game and um, and managed a lot of boxers' careers. Um, Primo Carnera being probably the most famous of those. Yeah. Well, and so why don't we just get at you? You come from this town. Yeah, How, what's what's your path with you know? You've got this incredible nexus of characters in your immediate family. Um, why don't you just walk me through your biography a little bit to how you get involved with writing? Well, I didn't come at it in a straight line, I guess, but maybe nobody does. I was, um, I was a union, union organizer for 15 years. Um, and so I, I, um, I traveled the country, the U.S. and Canada, as a union organizer on the road. 200 and something days a year, um, helping people organize unions and go on strike. And, and, uh, I did that for a long time. And then I, uh, I eventually ended up, um, 
uh, I started writing in a sort of a strange way. I um, was um, writing for a friend of mine had a basketball blog and I wrote a piece for him about um, about the NBA players uh, union negotiations that they were going through. And so I wrote something for his, this is back when blogging was actually a big deal and especially basketball blogs, I guess. And so I, he asked me to write a few more things. I wrote a few more things for his blog and, and I, it was fun. I enjoyed it and people sort of liked writing or liked reading what I was writing. So I got kind of into it. And um, then I found myself writing more and I did a column for McSweeney's that was about gambling and um that column got me an agent and an opportunity to write for grantland and i kind of think from there i just kept i just kept writing and eventually i was doing well enough with writing that i could stop i quit my job as a union organizer and just wrote full time um which was the right thing to happen at the time because i also that's around the same time i started having children and um started a family and needed to come off the road um, it was really difficult in the early years of my first of our first child where I was, you know, traveling all the time and I was living in hotels in places like Alabama while my wife was struggling trying to, like, handle being a new mom by herself. So I was looking for a way out of that. I was looking for a way that I could be home more. And so writing kind of offered itself to me around that time. And um, and it's, you know, allowed me to have some flexibility and to be able to have more kids. Um, <laughs> so. I, I say yep. that as someone who is currently, you know, frustrated that having kids is keeping me from writing right now because my kids don't ever leave the house because we're all on quarantine. But, um, but you know, that was that was a big part of why I, I started writing. And, you know, this book that I just wrote, the, this whole project was something that I never really imagined I would do. And um, I had a book editor take me to lunch and after a piece that I wrote for Grantland about bass fishing and. Uh, he asked me if I had any ideas for books and I don't know, it just sort of, I didn't even really think that this was a book idea. It was just something I'd been thinking about in a very, I don't know, not in any kind of serious way. And I mentioned it to him over lunch and he said, I'd buy that book today. And so I wrote oh. a proposal and then ended up getting a chance to write this book. I didn't realize it'd take five years of my life, but um, that's kind of how it happened. It's interesting often when I don't know many other writers, like you're probably the only one that comes to mind that's similar to me in that all of the stuff that I was trying to write about, I wrote th three novels, none of which are published, none of which should ever have been published before I kind of met an editor who was just like, well, what else do you do? I was like, well, just went to Cuba and was boxing there and, you know, there's Olympic champions you could hire for six bucks a day and I had this kind of Hemingway thing. He's like, What? Why aren't you writing about that? It never mm -hmm. occurred to me. Never occurred to me. Like, where's the, where's the conflict or drama in any of that was my sense. Like, that's what a story is. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. And I, it's, I still, to this day, feel a little bit like, um, you know, I have a bit of imposter syndrome just because I, I didn't, like, go to school for this. It's not something I spent my whole life dreaming I would do, you know. But now that I'm doing it, you know, I really enjoy it and I'm learning, you know, every year I learn a little bit more about how to do it well, I think, and I'm getting better. Um, but I still don't really even allow, my, I, it's hard for me to even think of myself as a writer, even though I've probably been doing it full time for, you know, I don't know, the last six years or so, six or seven years. Um, and that's, 
but it's 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 just still something that I feel like it's a detour. You know what I mean? Like I'm not sure where I'm headed with it and <laughs> whether I'll get to keep doing it. I, I fully, I always talk about plan my having a plan B because like when this book comes out and it flops, I'll no longer be able to justify to my wife, you know, <laughs> not having a, a day job anymore and I'll have to go back to work. Um, right. So I'm just, I'm constantly prepared for that reality to hit. Well, I wonder, I wonder also, I mean, your other big passion that I think brought me to your work first was this obituary on Harry Anderson. And that was blurring a lot of the lines of, about identity being such like a, I've ne- I've never seen anybody handle that, what's the word, not malleability. Um, I don't know. It was, it was just fascinating to me. You inserted this idea of what he represented that, he he can con people and get his job broke and then he learns i can do the same scam but as a performance and you'll give me the money and i'll put a smile on your face and i wondered why a character like him appealed to you so much when all he was to me was the goofy guy on night court when i was a little kid which was a show i was not happy if it was the only thing on at that point <laughs> yeah harry anderson's i mean i've I loved him since I was a kid and I was so happy to have an opportunity to write that after he died. Cause it did, it was, you know, he was somebody who I did think really highly of. And part of what I wanted to share with people in writing that was that I felt like Harry Anderson was someone who, um, who was a little, was misunderstood. Um, he had his greatest success in life as a sitcom actor, even though that's not the way he saw himself. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think he longed to be seen and appreciated for what he was more passionate about, which wasn't acting. You know, it was it was magic, and um, it was incredible how few people even knew that he was a magician, even though his character on this show <laughs> they had written him as a magician, you know, so that he could do that in the show. But um, but yeah, I, I just thought I found that fascinating. You know, that idea that like even though you're successful and you've lived your whole life, you know, as a successful actor that like, that's not, that wasn't, that's not really your craft. That's not really your art. And all you want is an opportunity to show people (laughs) what you're really good at. Um, And, uh, and I also thought one of the other things I thought was interesting about him as I read more about him and, and, and researched him to write that piece was that even kind of his whole biography, um, the story about his life that he told the world was a little bit of, you know, sort of personal mismaking too, you know, and that he, you know, in, in telling the story of himself as a con man who stumbled into an acting job, he was still kind of that in and of itself was a con, you know, that he was running a bit of a con on folks there, that that was also a little bit of a sleight of hand. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting too. Um, it's hard to know with him how much was real and how much was invention. And it kind of doesn't matter at the end of the day. And that I think really appealed to me too. You know, over the last bunch of years of writing this book, one of the things that I've thought about a lot, and I think I've even talked to you about this some is that, um, is this idea of truth, you know, and what's true and, and how do you know what's true and what isn't true? I think trying to write a nonfiction book, 
about things that I wasn't around for and did not witness and having to rely on the memories of others and the stories of others and people who I think were probably unreliable <laughs> um, mm. was it, it really made me wrestle with this idea about how much should I be concerned with trying to get to the root of this, get to the truth of this, you know, and solve this mystery of what's what really happened when so many things I had to get these like Rashomon type, you know, um, <laughs> stories from people. And I think by the end of the process, my attitude was, I don't care, right? Like, it's impossible. Sure. It's probably impossible, and I don't care. Like, I'm just going to – because at the end of the day, even if I never if I never wrote this book, these stories people would tell, they would just tell them their way to their kids who would tell them to their kids, and that's how that history would live on. And nobody would give a shit about how much it was true. And it was just the story that they were told. You know, Harry Anderson, you know, told a story about his life, and the only reason that we really want to pick apart what – is true and what isn't is because he was famous um but if he hadn't been famous nobody would have questioned any of it it just would have become truth and that would have been the tr that would have been truth you know what I mean? because that's the story that carries on to the next generation so i think that's fine um you know i think that unless we're talking about court and trying to like decide whether someone should go to jail or not um i think it's fine for people to just you know uh, decide what they want to believe about so something that ha where there are competing accounts or, you know, you suspect somebody might be putting a little bit of polish <laughs> on their story. Right. You know? I mean, I come from a family of carnies and, 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 and gamblers and storytellers. And I think that like, I was raised in a family where people told a lot of tall tales and there, you know, the skill of being able to tell a good story is something that I think is prized in my family and so um often that means exaggeration you know it often means tweaking and polishing around the edges of a story as it's told over the years and figuring out what's the right way to tell it to get the best reaction and um you know that's a skill that maybe has served me well as a writer i don't know but like you know that's sometimes means you have that, that the truth becomes malleable and um and I think when the stakes are low, who cares, right? I think I I, I like the I like the good story, um, rather than you know, the one that hems precisely to the <laughs> the facts at the expense of it being more dramatic. No, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I mean, who is a reliable narrator? Like, it, there isn't one. There and isn't one. There isn't one. And you know, I often I often think about this. I mean, you're you're touching upon celebrity or how wealth can transform who you are. I mean, even gambling is a kind of Hail Mary that even if I win the jackpot, am I going to be the kind of person who can play it safe for the rest of my life? I mean, you have all of these extraordinarily wealthy people who still are, are enjoying gambling, you know, blowing millions of dollars. And you just think, I don't know, it's, I often think about this in kind of American life. Like I, I remember watching a documentary on Andy Warhol and, and it made this point. We used to really use Norman Rockwell as a spokesman for who we are because his work is depicting us. And then Warhol changed all of that. And celebrity speaks for us because he's not just presenting Marilyn Monroe. He's presenting our collective longing for Marilyn Monroe. And then we get to have our taste of her to differentiate us. I get gold Marilyn and you get green Marilyn. Somebody else gets, you know, grape Marilyn or whatever. And I just thought like, wow, it's, 
it's interesting when you go to a, a casino or look at you know somebody like Harry and Magic, like what what oddly brings us together in a way with our longings and our demons and and that kind of thing. I don't know. It's well, there's this great you know um, trick that Penn and Teller do at the beginning of. Um... Often they'll do it at the beginning of their show in Vegas. I don't know if they do it every time, but they call it, I think it's called the honor system. And it's a, a trick where they have this um, wooden box on the stage by itself. And they, and Ch- Teller, I think, is chained up and put inside the box and it's padlocked and the audience can examine it. It's everything. Penn tells the audience that he's going to, you know, um, narrate what's happening, but that it, they're not going to cover it up or anything that, that, people should just close their eyes. And if you want to see how the trick is done, you can leave your eyes open and watch. But if you close your eyes and just listen and then open them when Teller's out of the box, you'll be more amazed. And if you watch, you'll be disappointed. And of course, everybody watches and of course, everybody's disappointed, but it makes an important point, which is that like, it's better for us to just close our eyes and allow ourselves to be entertained and surprised and amazed than to keep our eyes open and know the truth, but then to have not been, you know, but to, and then to have been underwhelmed. And I, I've always liked that. And I think that's an important thing about magic, you know, and not reveal the magician, not revealing its secrets. You never, you, you never end up knowing the truth because you don't know the secret. It's fun to try to puzzle it out. Sometimes that process of puzzling it out can be fun, but every time, once you get to the end and you do figure it out, or it's finally revealed to you, you know, it was the, the, the hunt was more fun than the knowledge at the end. And, and, and I, I think that like, that's, you know, and I, I say this not to say that I think that like, it's okay to like lie or bullshit in a nonfiction, in a work of nonfiction. And I don't think that's what I did in my book either, but I did have many times where I worked with like local historians who would argue with me over, you know, events that I would say that I thought happened. And, um, I'd say, well, how do you know that what you're saying is true? And they'd say, well, I had this newspaper article from whatever, you know, from 1942. And, you know, I would show them documents that I had FOIA'd from the government with wiretaps or, you know, recorded phone conversations or, you know, confidential informant testimony that showed a completely different story. And I'd say, well, who do you think told the reporter that? You know what I mean? Who do you think told the police that? Like everybody in these situations has a reason to lie to everybody else. Right. And they'd say, well, how do you know that the person on the phone that was being tapped wasn't lying? And I was like, that's right. I don't. <laughs> None of us do. Right. But but at least this 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 piece of paper I'm showing you should give you enough pause to realize that, like, the story you've told yourself your whole life because of this newspaper article from 1942 might not be the right version. And yeah. this might not be the right version either. I'm just I'm not trying to argue that my version is more true than yours. I'm trying to show you that none of us really know. So, like, if you you can choose to believe the one you want to believe, and I'll choose to believe the one I want to, but neither one of us gets a claim on gets to you know have a claim on what's really true because neither one of us were there, <laughs> and even if we were, we would. Who knows that we remembered it correctly? It it really is like, it's I don't know. It's a bit of a mind fuck, but uh, you know, when I really put a lot of pressure on myself for a number of years to to know the absolute truth of a thing that nobody was around, no one's still alive that they saw you know, and trying to solve that mystery, I think I had to come to grips with this, right? That like, I had to come to grips with the fact that I will never know. So I might as well be okay with having enough context to make my own judgment about what happened. Right. Well, and I think a lot of times that's more powerful because I mean, one of the, one of the issues that became a, a, 
like one of the real problems and burdens of trying to take on Cuba uh, that became a huge benefit was what the hell is the real story here? Well, there is no real story. Everybody has their story. Everybody's clinging it to it for their lives. And of 12 yeah. people, there's 12 completely different stories about what the real thing is. And when I would go to interview all these experts, be them academics, you know, writers, you know, in incredible, incredibly research takes, but you could tell the agenda from basically the first paragraph of every book that you knew was not going to veer from their preconceptions about what it was. And yeah. they'd all say to me, you don't understand anything. I'm going to tell you how it really works. And, and the, the insight I had very quickly after assembling all these things and trying to reconcile, was, reconcile them was, don't reconcile any of them. Just allow all of them to exist yeah. and, and don't editorialize. Be really upfront. I don't know what the fucking answer is, but do provide glimpses of like what they're saying, like prove what they're saying so that all of these contradictions can exist simultaneously. And then the reader knows you're not steering them and they go into a different place of trusting you, but, but get to arrive at their own conclusions. They get their own flavor of what they give weight to or what they don't. And that's an enjoyable yeah. place to be as a reader. I mean, I think a major part of my book where I had to really wrestle with this was that there's a scene in my book where my grandfather dies and it was a, um, you know, it's a, it's a event in my family history. That's sort of, there are, there are different sides on what happened, right? Whether he did it intentionally or whether it was an accident. And I think this is something that maybe a lot of people in a lot of families have to reckon with mostly because suicide is something that families tend to be embarrassed about and will lie to people <laughs> about what happened. You know what I mean? Like when there is a suicide in the family, people will keep it to themselves. They'll tell other people in the family not to tell anyone. They will lie to people about how, how somebody, what, what really happened because they're embarrassed about, and that was especially true in 1952. So, you know, I wrote this story, this scene after having interviewed a couple of people about it and immediately caught some backlash from people in my family who heard about it, heard what I was writing and had read or had read it and said that they didn't believe that that was right. And they were pissed that I was writing it that way. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I just had to say, look, you know, this is <laughs> none of us were in this man's brain. You know, all I can do is write this, the story the way it was told to me and credit the person who told it to me in the book and say, this is where the story comes from. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's yep. that's all I can do. I mean, you know, I could write it your way and then I'm just and then the other person is going to be pissed, right, that I'm writing it your way. So, you know, that's something as a writer, as an author, that's a responsibility that I had. And it was one that I was very uncomfortable with in the beginning. But in the end, I just said, you know what, I'm going to tell the story. This is my book. It's my name on the front. I'm going to tell the story the way I believe it to have happened. And I'm going to credit where I got <laughs> where I got this information from. But that was a tough one, you know. And um, and if you read it, I don't know if you've read that part, but when you read it, you'll see that like I. I try to take at least a little bit of care to not say, you know, I can't say what someone was thinking or feeling because I wasn't there. You know what I mean? I don't know how. And I didn't interview that person because they're dead. So right. I don't attribute any motivations to him when he does it. But I definitely there's enough context around it that people can draw their own conclusions. And that context comes from people who were there and around, you know, so I don't know. It was it was a tough thing to do, but it was uh, it required a lot of thinking on my part about how to thread that needle. Um, and be respectful of the fact that there are people 
in my family who do not believe that this is what happened. I think you're really judicious about it, and I think that you're dispassionate. I mean, that's the problem, is the passionate archaeologist is the one not to trust, or the passionate any searcher, they're going to find what they're looking for, even if it's not what it actually is supposed to be, which is, you know, very... I remember, like, speaking of magicians, like the amazing Randy, a uh, Canadian, born Canadian magician, made this point where one of his friends to to pay for college did uh, tarot card reading. He he learned how to do it. He read a few books on tarot card reading, and as a thought experiment, him and Randy conspired. What if you do exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to do with tarot card reading with people coming to you? It made absolutely no difference. They were just as happy with the results. Mm-hmm. Because if you're showing up, you're all, you've already given your money away. Like you've bought a ticket and you're all in. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, in buying the ticket, you're also acknowledging that you believe that this person or that these cards, are, you know, are going to tell you the truth no matter what. Um, right. And, and that you're not going to get scammed by it. Sure. No, it's, that makes sense it, to me. And I mean, I, just, just in the same way that every religious person is a complete atheist to every other faith except theirs. Every other faith is absurd and ridiculous, but theirs makes complete sense. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. So what is, what is next after this book? I mean, you're already <laughs> hedging your bets. <laughs> I know. Like emotionally. But uh, I am. But from here? I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to write another book. I have an idea for another book. I don't know if I'll get a chance to write it or not, but I'd like to keep doing this. Um, I feel like I would like to know that the skills that I learned over the last bunch of years researching this book, I can put to good use by writing another one. Um, because I really did have to learn <laughs> a lot about research. You know what I mean? Forget about writing. You know I mean? That was hard enough to learn how to write a book. But even just learning how to do the research, I think, was it was it's a skill now that I think I have that I'd like to put to use. Um, I have a podcast that I'm working on with The Ringer that's about gamblers and um you know, that was supposed to come out this spring, but now we're not sure if it'll come out until maybe the end of the year. Some of the episodes are on hold because nobody's leaving their house now. Um, so I'm excited to do that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I have not got a good plan beyond the next couple of months. I feel like so much of my life for the last five years has been pointed towards this one moment of this book coming out. And it's been hard for me to allow myself to think about my life after it because I have been hedging my bets and saying, okay, well, once this is over, I may have to, you know, <laughs> get off this detour and get back to my regular life. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a, it's a very odd moment to stare down that people who haven't been in your shoes, like it's, it's just nothing, right? Like they have no idea what the backstage pass is like waiting for reviews. What do you do if you get a good one? You know, the media stuff, is it going to get in the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera? It's a, it's a very antsy, anxious place to be. Yeah. Yeah, and also this idea that people, and I don't know, it may not be true, but this idea that, like, you know, if the book doesn't do well, I won't get to write another one. So, you know, w wondering whether the book's going to do well commercially. And that, you know, sucks to have to think about it like that. But it's not so much that I want it to do well commercially so I can make a bunch of money. It's because I want it to do well commercially because I want to write another book, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like somebody to allow me to write another book um, and write the 
book that I want to write. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm at right now is I'm just hoping to have an, a chance to do it again. And I'm hoping people will like it. But honestly, this book is so personal that like, th even if I never read another book in my life, I'll feel okay because I got a chance to write this book about my family and, you know, and make this like poor Southern family of, you know, of a bunch of like wild rednecks into like an actual book. I think that, you know, makes me feel proud. And I'm glad that I had an opportunity to do that, even if I don't ever write anything else. Um, and, you know, my dad being able to write a book about my dad and his life, you know, that makes me feel like I did something good. But I don't know well, what's next, man. I really don't. Well, it's a it's an absolutely fantastic book. I think it's all a crapshoot. There's a lot of great books that don't go anywhere. There's a lot of shitty books that do very well. So I have no idea, but the quality is definitely there in everything that I read. I was really impressed. Like I've always been with all of your work. I appreciate that. It means a lot. I mean, I've always been a big fan of yours too. And you know, um, it was cool like watching you write. Uh, a grandmaster while I was working on this and getting to see, you know, that book come out and um, get to pick your brain about it and talk to you about it. You know, I, I, I feel like um, that was such a helpful moment for me, you know, um, to be like, oh, that's what it's going to be like to have a book that actually is a physical thing in the world. <laughs> um, and I loved that book. I think Thanks, it was, man. Uh, it was great. Well, I am immensely cribbing from your Harry Anderson thing because it, it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff uh, with what I'm working on right now. Of Not even just the, the work, but just, just people. I'm still obsessed with this idea of that I, I'm a hustler and I, I'm putting my life at risk, but I can hustle as an act and I put smiles on people's faces and they will support me. That is such an unbelievable insight about so many people that I've been fascinated by that did not exist in my brain until I read you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, um, but it's one that I feel like a lot of Americans are totally uh, fascinated with that, that culture and that, that, archetype, that archetype of a person, you know. And it may be because that, those specific type of people are as a matter of who they are, hide so much of themselves from the rest of us, you know, that we're, they make themselves so mysterious that naturally we're all intrigued um, by them and by their world. Yeah, there's this thing about, there's a otherwise really awful book, I think it's called Night Train to Lisbon, and I, I think by accident, like Netflix put it on. I do like Jeremy Irons, who's in it. But there's a line in it that I like. It woke me from falling asleep. I get my one hour of sleep every night till insomnia takes over. And it said, "Every secret has its own weight." And that stayed with me for like a week of trying to put on a scale. Like, what are the secrets of the people I know? What are what are my secrets? Why do I keep this from other people? Uh, and there's something there's something about that. Like, I I just thought. What you're, what you're creating with an oasis of vice, like Hot Springs was, or Vegas, Atlantic City, or so many other domains. I mean, even just a guy cashing his welfare check to go buy lottery tickets. Um, it's fascinating to work backwards with, with everything we aim for in life and long for versus what we're running away from to kind of get at 
how we would wish to be seen versus what we're, we, how we do not want to be seen in terms of identity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Sorry, go ahead. I think that the, um, this, this question about, uh, this idea of running away from something is totally present in, in, in the book. And I think that might be because in order to take the kind of risks that people take in order to, you know, be ambitious, they are often motivated to take those risks because they are running away from something else. Like the, 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 the force that's propelling them towards that risk is far worse than the consequence of the risk failing. And that's right. what enables certain people to take big risk while there are others of us who don't have that, that force at our back are unwilling to take those kinds of risks. And so we never, <laughs> we never do anything that big, maybe, you know? So there's a little bit of a yin and yang there. Oh, and I think, I think it dovetails really nicely. You ever read that guy, Duke de la Rochefoucauld, that it's just, it's nothing but adages? It's like adages mm-hmm. piercing the bullshit. French guy, I want to say 18th century. Um, but one of them was, like, if you're able to resist the things that bring other people down, it's not because you're strong. It's just because it isn't as powerful with you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And we, it's true, but it's, it's interesting how, yeah, that calculus in every person with... I think about it all the time where it's somebody, somebody's publishing a memoir and it's like, it's so brave to mine your own personal experience. Not necessarily. It might be the only thing you're able to do. You might be compulsive about it. It might be mm-hmm. brave for you not to do it. I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. Everybody who gets married is not brave. Some That's of them right. are brave, but some people are terrified of being single. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it depends on your reasons, but we don't like to scratch and sniff much of this stuff. All right, I will. I will. I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for this, Dave. Uh, it's my pleasure. I hope you guys stay safe, and we can get together after. All right, man. Be good. All Thanks right. again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Bye bye. listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.